Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. In UFO speak, a flap describes a large or numerous amount of UFO sightings in a specific area over a short period of time. So we're going to talk about a UFO flap that happened over Wales in the late 70s. An area of Wales became the unwitting and perhaps unwanted host to such a flap back in 1997. So much so the area was dubbed the Welsh Triangle, the Dyfed Triangle, or the Broadhaven Triangle in the manner after the Bermuda Triangle. Now, we've talked about other triangles, the Alaska Triangle, the Bridgewater Triangle, and in other areas that are called that because of the mysterious happenings within the areas. Well, this is another one. The Broadhaven Triangle and the other names were coined after an article written in The Sun titled Spaceman Mystery of the Terror Triangle. This sighting heralded an extraordinary year of unusual happenings in Wales. As it unfolded, vast numbers of people claimed to see UFOs or to have truly bizarre paranormal experiences of other kinds. In early February of 1977, a yellow cigar-shaped craft was claimed to have landed in a field next to Broadhaven Primary School with a group of 14 children claiming to have observed the craft and the silver creature. Actually, they, uh, they said they observed several small creatures dressed in silver, but they all had pointed ears. And that was not touched on in some of the stories. The group of School children ran excitedly into their school and told their teacher that they'd seen a silver-suited spaceman coming out of a spaceship. Perhaps, and not surprisingly, their teacher didn't believe them and carried on with the lessons as normal. On getting out of school, however, they claimed they saw the spaceship again. They told friends, parents, and everyone they could think of but no one in the grown-up world would take them seriously. The next day, so miffed were these youngsters by this inattention 
on all fronts, that they handed in a petition to the police demanding the incident be investigated properly. David Davies was 10 years old at the time and, and as a student of Broadhaven School, heard reports of pupils seeing flying saucers throughout the day. I was a natural born skeptic, so after the bell rang, I decided to go to the area that the children said they had seen it, he told BBC Wales. He described seeing a silver cigar-shaped craft with a dome covering the middle third. My sighting only lasted a couple of seconds. It popped up, then went back behind a tree. Mr. Davies said he did not feel afraid, more in awe and wonderment, although he admitted he had a strange desire to run away. Mr. Davies described the days that followed as a wild roller coaster. It went crazy with the media and it was difficult to settle down and actually think about what we had seen. All the fuss caused the headmaster to take the UFO sighting a little more seriously than he had before. He gathered all the children involved in the incident together and asked them to draw what they had seen. The drawings that resulted were highly consistent, showing a saucer-shaped UFO with the dome on top. Later in February, the same craft was claimed to have been seen by teachers at the school and other witnesses. Another of the most famous incidents occurred around the Haven Fort Hotel in Little Haven. The owner of the hotel, a Mrs. Rose Granville, claimed she had seen an upside down saucer shaped UFO outside of the hotel window. She said so much heat came off of it, her face felt burned. There was light coming from it and flames of all colors. Then the creatures came out of these flames. That's what I don't understand, she said. Strange humanoids with pointed heads wearing whitish boiler suits emerged from the UFO and walked around for a bit as if gathering something or measuring something. Mrs. Granville went to fetch other residents of the hotel to show them, but found the UFO and its mysterious occupants gone by the time she returned. When she visited the field, she said there was two inches of burned ground. Ms. Granville said the incident left her agitated and disturbed. Somewhat distressed by the encounter, Ms. Granville wrote a letter to her MP, her Member of Parliament, that's uh, like her state representative, who promptly asked the Ministry of Defense to investigate. Then MP for Pembroke, Nicholas Edwards, contacted the Ministry of Defense after being inundated with UFO sightings. As a result, Mrs. Granville received a visit from an RAF officer who listened to her story and professed himself mystified by it all. Flight Lieutenant Cowan, an officer from RAF Brody, which is nearby, visited Mrs. Granville's hotel and examined the site, but could find no evidence of a landing. With typical British stiff upper lip, he joked, should a UFO arrive at RAF Brody, we will charge normal landing fees. In his report, he mentioned the possibility that a local prankster was at work 
and the description of aliens fitted exactly the type of protection suit that would have been issued in the event of a fire at one of the local oil refineries. The Dyfed mystery unfolds. One family in particular was very severely affected by it all, the Coombs family, who were employed at the Ripperston farm, had a number of very strange experiences. Among these were sightings of UFOs from their car, including one particular incident when they were driving down the road to the farm, a ball of light came at them, skipped over their car, and then started following them, and then the car died on the way home. Well, they made it to the farm, but they ran in the house and locked themselves in. Nothing else happened that night. But they had all kinds of problems, like with their car, and they saw a seven-foot silver-suited being with the black visor appearing outside their window and peering in at them. This fits in with the account of businessman Glenn Edwards, who in 1996 revealed he wandered around the area in a silver suit in 1977 as a prank. The question was raised in saner times, why would someone take a chance of pranking his neighbors who were mostly farmers and most assuredly had shotguns available and possibly ready? The Coombs also suffered constant mechanical disturbances including their car and their television set which repeatedly broke down and needed to be replaced. And their cows were seemingly being transported from one field to another. They received a phone call from a not-too-near neighbor that the Combs' cattle were in his yard. Mr. Combs assured him that they were in the barn where he had just left them. After a lot of back and forth, which here in Texas we call an argument, Mr. Combs put the phone down, went to the barn to find no cattle. Oh, bother. Someone seems to have nicked my livestock. I'll be around in the morning to collect the cheeky little bounders. Righto? The Broadhaven UFO flap was one of the most important in British history. The strange events there, which elicited interest from journalists and researchers throughout the country, have still never been satisfactorily explained. There were no alien invasions or tales of abduction, yet a UFO sighting by a group of Pembrokeshire school children remains one of the most famous cases in Wales. The National Archives also released files which examined UFO sightings across Wales, and the officials who investigated the Broadhaven sightings suspected pranksters. There is general speculation in the neighborhood that a practical joker may be at work, wrote staff at S4, which is the government department that investigated the sightings at the time. It was also thought school children could have confused a sewage tank, uh, hauled by a truck, as a UFO, although many were from farming backgrounds and would have been familiar with the machinery, uh, it would figure. More recently, a former U.S. Navy sailor, and this is the, the really scratch-your-head part, a former U.S. Navy sailor said the figure in a silver suit was, in fact, a member of U.S. military personnel 
wearing their standard fireproof uniform, and the UFOs were new Harrier jets flying over. Some skeptics have claimed that the entire Broadhaven UFO flap was caused by hoaxers. It was noted that silver suits, somewhat resembling those described by the eyewitnesses, were in use at a nearby oil refinery. As happens in most cases of persistent UFO activity in a specific area, hoaxing does soon enter the picture. Local yahoos see it as a great opportunity to have some fun. The Welsh Triangle Flap was no exception. Indeed, some of the hoaxers have now come forward and admitted it publicly. The temptation is to dismiss all of the incidents because of a few fake ones. It's difficult to see how hoaxers could account for all of the flying objects that were sighted, however, so fakery cannot provide a complete explanation for events in the Broadhaven area as a whole. Whether these sightings were true or not, they provided an interesting atmosphere to Broadhaven. Lingering Spirits of a Chicago Disaster On May 25, 1979, one of the most horrifying disasters in Chicago and in American history took place at O'Hare International Airport when American Airlines Flight 191 literally fell from the sky, killing all of the 271 passengers and crew on board. The flight was meant to be a non-stop journey from Chicago to Los Angeles, but it never left the Windy City and it left an eerie haunting behind. It was a beautiful holiday weekend in Chicago. The sunny skies gave no indication of the horror that was about to take place. The passengers of Flight 191, including a number of Chicago literary figures bound for Los Angeles and the annual American Booksellers Association Conference, mixed with the throngs of people at O'Hare. They boarded the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 just before 3. The DC-10 was a top-of-the-line aircraft, and this particular model had logged more than 20,000 trouble-free hours since it left the assembly line. The crew was top-notch as well, including Captain Walter Lux, an experienced pilot who had been flying DC-10s since her introduction into service eight years before and First Officer James Dillard and Flight Engineer Alfred Udovich, who had nearly 25,000 flight hours between them. At 2.59, the plane was cleared to begin its taxi onto the runway, and then, at 3.02 p.m., Flight 191 started down the runway. All went smoothly until the aircraft reached a point about 6,000 feet down the runway. The tower controller saw parts of the port engine pylon falling away from the aircraft and a white vapor coming from the area. A moment later, the plane pitched into rotation and lifted off. As it did so, the entire engine and pylon tore loose from their mounting, flipped up and over the wing, and then crashed down on the runway. Immediately, the tower tried to raise the plane on the radio. 
American 191, do you want to come back? If so, what runway do you want? There was no reply from the aircraft, but it proceeded to climb normally, only dipping the left wing for a moment. It quickly stabilized and the plane continued its ascent. About 10 seconds later, at a height of around 300 feet off the ground, the aircraft began to bank to the left, first slightly, then sharply. The nose of the plane dipped and as the airplane began to lose height, the bank to left increased until the wings were past vertical. Means it was almost going on its back. And then it fell to earth. The left wing tip hit the ground first and the sound of tearing metal was followed by a massive explosion. The rushing fireball swept across the field, traveling about a half mile northwest of O'Hare and roared into an abandoned hangar on the site of the old Ravenswood Airport at Tui Avenue, just east of a mobile home park. The burning plane crossed mostly open ground, narrowly missing some fuel storage tanks on Elmhurst Road and the crowded I-90 Expressway. Two people on the ground were killed and several mobile homes were damaged, but the entire crew and all of the passengers on the plane were killed instantly. The disaster stunned the entire country, leading to scores of questions about the DC-10 aircraft and how the loss of only one engine had sealed the fate of Flight 191. The findings of a long and grueling investigation by the NTSB were released on December 21, 1979. It attributed the cause of the crash to an engine pylon that had been damaged at an American Airlines maintenance facility in March of 79. The engine had needed some routine maintenance and to save time and costs, American Airlines, without the approval of McDonnell Douglas, had instructed their mechanics to remove the engine and pylon as a single unit. A large forklift was used to support the engine while it was being detached from the wing. This procedure was extremely difficult to execute successfully because the engine assembly had to be held perfectly straight while it was being removed. This is almost impossible to do without causing a crack. After the accident, Cracks were found in the bulkheads of many other DC-10s. The fracture in the plane used for Flight 191 went unnoticed for weeks, getting worse with each flight. During Flight 191's takeoff, enough force was generated to finally cause the pylon to fail. At the point of rotation, the engine detached and was flipped over the top of the wing. A tiny crack had caused the flight to end in disaster. A number of ghost stories followed in the wake of the crash. According to Deplane's police officers, not Deplane's police officers, Deplane's, D-E-S-P-L-A-I-N-E-S, police officers, motorists began reporting odd sights within a few months of the crash. They called in about seeing odd, bobbing white lights in the field where the aircraft had gone down. First, thought to be flashlights carried by ghoulish souvenir hunters, officers responded to the reports only to find the field was silent and deserted. 
No one was ever found, despite patrols arriving on the scene almost moments after receiving a report. More unnerving, though, were the accounts that came from the residents of the nearby mobile home park, which was adjacent to the crash site. Many of these reports came within hours of the crash, when residents claimed to hear knocking and rapping sounds at their doors and windows. Those who responded, including a number of retired and off-duty police officers and firefighters, opened their doors to find no one was there. Dogs in the trailer park would bark endlessly at the empty field where the plane had gone down. Their owners could find no reason for their erratic behavior. This continued for weeks and months and even escalated to the point that doorknobs were being turned and rattled. Footsteps were heard approaching the trailers, clanging on the metal stairs, and on some occasions, actual figures were confronted. According to some reports, a few residents opened their doors to find a worried figure who stated that he had to get his luggage or had to make a connection standing on their porch. The figure then turned and vanished into the darkness. The tragedy and the strange events that followed caused many of the residents to move out of the park, but when new arrivals took their place, they too began to report the weird happenings. One sighting was described by a man out walking his dog one night near the area where Flight 191 went down. He was approached by a young man who explained that he needed to make an emergency call. The man with the dog looked at this person curiously, for he seemed to reek of gasoline and also appeared to be smoldering. At first, he just assumed the man had been running on this chilly night and steam was coming up from his clothing. But when he turned away to point out a nearby phone and then turned back, the man had vanished. The man with the dog had heard stories from other local residents about moans and weird cries emanating from the 1979 crash site, but he never believed them until now. He was now convinced that he had encountered one of the restless passengers from Flight 191 for himself. What's in a flight number? Most flight numbers are assigned based on one of two factors, the route of the flight, such as short haul and long haul, or based on the operator of the flight. For example, American Eagle, operated by Republic Airways. When the worst happens and a flight is involved in an accident, the airline will often retire that flight number from their systems. However, there is one slightly ominous flight number that appears to have a higher than normal amount of crashes, and it is Flight 191. There have been four commercial flights with the flight number 191 that have crashed, as well as one flight that had an onboard incident resulting in a diversion. The stigma of Flight 191 has led many airlines not to schedule a Flight 191. The curse of Flight 191 began in Puerto Rico in 1972. Prenair was the flag carrier for Puerto Rico and operated numerous flights around the island and beyond. On the night of June 24, 1972, a Prenair de Havilland Heron was operating Flight 191 between Luis Munoz Marin International Airport in San Juan 
and Mercedita Airport in Ponce on the south end of the island. Due to the flight's poor punctuality, the control tower at Mercedita was closed and the pilots had to declare their intentions on the uncontrolled frequency. As the airplane was approaching the airport, the pilots believed they saw an airport vehicle on the runway. The pilots then executed a missed approach and ended up stalling the aircraft above the runway. The flight proceeded to drop and suddenly crashed into the runway. Of the 20 people aboard, five were killed, including the two crew members. The NTSB initially ruled that the presence of an unauthorized vehicle on the runway caused the pilots to go around and stall. However, three years after the accident, the NTSB reopened the investigation when it was revealed that the person believed to be the driver of the vehicle had left the airport 15 minutes before the crash. The investigation could not conclude on what had caused the pilots to abort the landing and go around. Curious, huh? The next flight to fall victim to the curse was the one we opened with, the crash in Chicago. The third victim to the Flight 191 stigma occurred in 1985 in Dallas. Delta Airlines Flight 191 was flying from Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport to LAX with a stop in Dallas. A Lockheed L-1011 operated the flight with an experienced flight crew at the helm. While halfway to Dallas over Louisiana, thunderstorms began to form in the path of Flight 191. These storms were common for the hot Dallas summers and pilots were experienced with their strength. The flight proceeded normally to Dallas and they began their descent into DFW in the late afternoon, just as the storms were hitting their peak. They descended through the thunderstorms surrounding the Dallas area and lined up for a landing on runway 17L, which is now 17C. As they were on approach, a severe thunderstorm lay between them and the runway. As the flight entered the storm, they experienced a microburst. A microburst is a weather phenomenon that causes an increase in headwind, slowing an aircraft down, and a severe downdraft which pushes the aircraft straight to the ground. Then a strong tailwind pushes the aircraft forward. The L-1011 hit the ground in a field short of the runway and bounced back up into the air. Then it crossed a Texas highway on the end of the runway where an engine hit a car, killing its sole occupant. The aircraft then bounced into the, to the air again before veering out of control into water tanks on the airport's perimeter. At this time, the tail section spun off and ended up in the grass next to the runway. The entire forward section of the aircraft from row 34 to the nose was destroyed in the collision. In total, 137 people of the 163 aboard died in this tragedy. The NTSB was dispatched to investigate the crash. With so much of the aircraft destroyed in the collision with the water tanks and the post-crash fire, the investigators were left with very little to base their investigation on. Furthermore, the stormy weather in the area gave the investigators their first clue. 
Using radar images from the time of the crash, they were able to see that at the moment that the airplane began its final descent, they passed through a severe thunderstorm with strong varying winds creating rough wind shear conditions. This created the strong microburst conditions that caused the flight to lose lift and slam into the ground. Although the flight ended in tragedy, a lot was learned from this crash. Shortly after, NASA began research on technology to detect wind shear and microbursts, and in 1994, the first wind shear detection device was installed on an aircraft and made mandatory by the FAA. The final victim to the Flight 191 curse was a Delta connection flight from Lexington, Kentucky to Delta's hub in Atlanta in late August of 2006. Delta Connection Flight 5191 was operated by Comair as Flight 191. The flight was an early morning flight to bring passengers to connections in Atlanta. The flight, operated by a CRJ 200, was nearly fully loaded for the early morning departure with only three empty seats. The light traffic at Lexington that morning meant Flight 191 was quick to start up and taxi on the runway. Once lined up on the runway, the pilots began their takeoff roll and noticed an oddity in front of them as the runway lights were not on. The pilots dismissed this and continued with their takeoff. Just as the pilots called for rotation, the aircraft ran off the end of the runway. The flight became momentarily airborne before slamming into the ground a thousand feet down from the end of the runway. The impact separated the tail from the rest of the aircraft, killing 49 of the 50 people on board. As the sun rose over the Kentucky bluegrass, the reason for the crash was quite obvious. Comair 191 had taken off from the wrong runway. Lexington has two runways, runway 22, used by most commercial traffic, and runway 26, used mostly by general aviation aircraft. The pilots had accidentally taxied onto the significantly shorter runway 26. The shorter runway meant that there was not enough room for Flight 191 to take off. The NTSB descended on Northern Kentucky and was able to quickly recover the CVR and the FDR, the black boxes. Using these black boxes, the NTSB was able to determine the cause of the accident was pilot error. There was also unnecessary talk between the pilots, violating the FAA's sterile cockpit procedure. Secondary blame was placed on the FAA for only having one aircraft controller on duty, as well as Lexington Airport for having poor signage and runway markings. The only survivor, the first officer, was left with severe injuries, including losing a leg and being bound to a wheelchair. Throughout history, Many cultures have had unlucky numbers, and for the aviation industry, it appears that unlucky number is 191. The amount of accidents with this specific flight number is unprecedented and has caused most airlines to retire the flight number from use. A check of FlightAware revealed only United and Spirit are still using that flight number of the major U.S. carriers. The legacy of Flight 191 still remains, but the numerous crashes have led to changes and innovations in the industry that made flying increasingly safer. 
Are some numbers negatively influenced? Or are they cursed? I don't know for sure, but if I ever fly again, I'm dodging flights 191 and flights 401. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the, all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments. Or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.